verses 1 through 21, it's really broken up into two major sections. Verses 1 through 10 is the need for new life. The need for new life. Verses 11 through 21 is the need to believe. And it's very significant because when we get into that second portion, the word believe is found seven times. And so it's very clear that that is what is going on in that portion of Scripture. So we, we have a need for new life, and we have a need to believe. And that need is of greatest importance. Amen? So before we get in, if you would allow me to pray one more time for our study. Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus, and we lift your name on high. You're worthy of praise. I thank you, Father, that you have received much praise up to this very moment. And now as we set our hearts and our focus upon your word, would you continue to be praised? Holy Spirit, would you move mightily in this room and help us because there are many distractions in this life. We come in here with many hurts, with many fears and failures, with many needs. And uh, I pray, Lord, that you would, in this moment, remove all of that and that you would allow us to focus in and to gaze upon your glory and your beauty as we behold you in your word. And as this message is spoken, Holy Spirit, would you please bring comfort to your people? Great Shepherd Jesus, would you please shepherd your people? Would you bring words of encouragement and correction? Would you bring words of comfort, words of rebuke even? May we learn something new about you today, Jesus, that would drive us uh, to a deeper place of love and devotion. And may above all, Jesus, you be exalted to the highest place because you're worthy and we are yours and you've saved us and you've called us together this day to bring you glory and honor. And I know you're pleased. And may we sense your pleasure. May we know that you rejoice over us even now as we gather here in your name. Father, we love you. We commit this time to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, here we go. So point number one, verses one through ten, the need for new life. As we work our way through the text here, I have several C's I'm going to throw at you, all right? Several C's. So the first thing that we see here is a real confidence regarding the person of Jesus, verses one through two. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So here we have this faithful brother Nicodemus. I love this guy. He may be one of my favorite uh, people in the New Testament. And uh, he's coming to Jesus at night, this seems to be maybe a covert visit. He doesn't, want, he doesn't want it to be known that he's here, perhaps, and that's understandable as we kind of look a little more deeply into who this guy is. You could say this was Nick at night. <laughs> Some of you are just too young to know what that is, but a number of us, we know what that is. Nick at night. Now, what about Nick? Nick was a Pharisee. And we know who the Pharisees are. We talk about them all the time. But they actually started out really well. It was a group of uh, leaders known as the separate ones. That's what the Pharisee means. They were separated to God. And they were super strict. And they became very legalistic. 
They were all about the application of the law, and they came up with many crazy applications that were really a burden. They, they paralyzed the people more than, more than it, it led to heartfelt worship and holiness. And they really were a, a sect of blue-collar religious folks. These were kind of the blue-collar men. They weren't aristocratic by any uh, stretch like the Sadducees were. They weren't of uh, the, the high the high class, if you will, uh, but they exercised a lot of influence and power in the day, and they were well respected by many, and they loved that. They were very hypocritical, as we know, and they were probably some of Jesus' most fiercest critics and enemies, uh, and Jesus didn't have any, uh, any really good thing to say about the Pharisees because he hated their religious hypocrisy, and so Nicodemus was one of those guys. And we're told that he was a ruler of the Jews. And so this is significant. Not only was he a Pharisee, but it would seem that he was a member of the Sanhedrin. And so the Sanhedrin was a, a council of ruling elders. This was like the Supreme Court of Israel. It was made up of 70 members. And these guys exercised immense power and authority in Israel. And so Nicodemus was a Pharisee and a member of the Sanhedrin, it would appear. Now, down in verse 10, Jesus actually refers to him as the teacher of Israel. The teacher of Israel. That's significant. One commentator says that the use of the definite article, the, indicates that Nicodemus was a renowned master teacher in the nation of Israel, an established religious authority. He enjoyed a high standing among the rabbis and the teachers of his day. So Nicodemus was the man, okay? He was a Pharisee. He was a Sanhedrin. He was a master teacher who had a great reputation amongst the rabbis and the teachers of that day. And here he is coming to Jesus by night. And that, to me, makes a little bit of sense. Uh, he, he probably didn't want the other Pharisees to know that he was coming to Jesus uh, like this. And so not everybody agrees with that. Some people think that it could be some other reason, and perhaps, but at any rate... He says to Jesus when he comes, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God. I love that. That is very humble, and it's a sincere, I believe, affirmation. You know, there are other uh, religious guys, scribes, lawyers who come to try to test Jesus. And they'll uh, say, Rabbi, teacher, and then they try to twist Jesus up into a pretzel, which never happens. They, Jesus turns it around on them every time. But here, when he says rabbi and teacher, you can just hear the, uh, the, sincerity, the sincerity in this guy. And he says, no one can do the signs that you do. Nobody can do these things unless God is with him. And so I believe this to be genuine. It's a genuine belief. He's acknowledging the obvious. Now, we've talked already about all the signs that Jesus does. And oftentimes, what are, what are the people's response to it? Jesus, I want to see another magic trick. I'll believe who you are if you can just give me another sign. And so we call that false belief. And that last week, remember, Jesus, his response to that kind of thing was uh, he would put distance between himself and people like that. Jesus didn't have faith in their faith. And so Jesus didn't entrust himself to people like that. I don't think that's what we have here with Nicodemus. I think we have a sincere guy who genuinely believes and he is seeking to know more about Jesus, and I love that. We know other things about Nicodemus. He comes up again in a couple other places in the Gospel of John. 
And I think we get little hints of his sincere faith there as well. Uh, in John chapter 7, the, the Pharisees, they're all conspiring against Jesus, and they're, they're trying to figure out how they can take him out. And Nicodemus speaks up, and it says, Nicodemus, he who came to Jesus by night, so it's referencing John 3, being one of the Pharisees, said to them, does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing? So he's standing up for Jesus. You guys are so quick to condemn, but does our law condemn a man who hasn't been properly heard? And uh, in their response to Nicodemus, they answer and say, hey, are you also from Galilee? And so that's kind of like a mocking thing. Uh, um, they were, uh, there was derision in that. You know, you want to be one of his disciples, Galilean? Go ahead. And so Nicodemus kind of boldly stood out there and took up for Jesus a little bit. I like that. And then after Jesus was crucified, we know Joseph of Arimathea requested to have his body and to place Jesus' body in his own tomb that he had purchased. And John chapter 19, verse 38, it says, After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took the body of Jesus. And Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, there it is, again, the, the same reference to John 3, also came, bringing a mixture of, of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. And so that's very significant to me. You know, we, we see Nicodemus pop up a couple times throughout the Gospel of John. And he comes with costly worship there uh, to honor the, the body of Jesus as they take him from the cross and lay him in the tomb. And so it amazes me that a man of this caliber came to Jesus when almost everyone rejected him, especially of the Pharisees. That's significant to me. You know, what, what would be so different about this guy? I had heard one time there was an estimation of like 5,000 Pharisees. I don't know if that's true or not. I haven't went back and, and checked that, but uh, that's a lot. There were a lot of these guys, and they almost all seemed to hate Jesus and be total religious hypocrites, except this guy. And uh, I have to wonder, you know, what was different about him? And I think the answer is not that Nicodemus was great, but that God was drawing him. It was the faithfulness of God, and I think that's what we're going to see as we move a little farther into our text here, as Jesus begins to speak to Nicodemus I think we're going to see just that if we read between the lines just a little bit. It's not that Nicodemus was so good or so different. It's that God was faithful and God was graciously drawing this guy to himself. Because we have to consider this guy is the master of religion. That was what the Pharisees were known for. Their religiosity, their ability to adhere to all the outward rituals far beyond anything we could ever even begin to imagine. I mean, it just boggles the mind, the stuff that these guys would come up with, the rules and regulations so as not to, uh, not to break the law. I'll just give you an example. Like, there's no work on the Sabbath, so you're not allowed to spit. Because if the spit were to hit the dirt and then cause a little furrow, then you just plowed. You just worked on the Sabbath day. And I mean, on and on and on it goes. There's a million of those. And so um, we're talking to a guy who knew how to work his way, if you will, into God's good graces, if such a thing could be done. And so I think Jesus is just going to drop a bomb on that. And we're going to see that uh, 
He may be the master worker, if you will, but his works just won't work. His works just won't cut it. And so we see Nicodemus and his confidence in Jesus. That brings us to our next C, uh, verses 3 through 10, and that is confusion. Confusion regarding the words of Jesus. Jesus is about to throw him off. I don't know, this kind of trips me out. Jesus doesn't say, you know what, I am, I am the man. He just like throws a bomb on him and he's like, now Nicodemus is like, what? And so verse 3, Jesus answered said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born so Jesus responds to Nicodemus's affirmations with a very peculiar and rather blunt statement. It's like he just cuts right to the core of what's going on here. And he just says, look, you've got to be born again. You must be born again. Now that phrase literally means born from above. Born from above. And this is what you know, theologians would refer to as regeneration. Regeneration. It is being made alive. It's, if, if you will, it's when the lights turn on. The Bible says that we were dead in our trespass and sin. We were alive physically, but we were totally dead spiritually. And then in a moment in time, God turns the lights on and we come to life in Christ. And, and we know that Jesus is true and that the Word, it comes to life. And the Holy Spirit is working in us and we are a new creation in Him. That is the act of regeneration. And we see this in Titus chapter 3. In Titus chapter 3, Paul is speaking, and I, I love this little text here. He describes who we were and how we were outside of Christ. He says, For we ourselves were also once foolish. Now in the Bible, when the Bible talks about a fool, he's talking about someone who rejects the knowledge of God. We think of foolish or a fool as you know, stupid or ignorant, but that's not what the Bible means when it says a fool. In Psalms, it says the fool has said in his heart that there is no God. And so Paul says we ourselves were once foolish. We were disobedient. We were deceived. We were serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. And so that was us outside of Christ. That was us. But in verse 4 it says, When the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward men appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us through the washing of regeneration. There it is. He saved us through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, who He poured out on us abundantly, through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that having been justified by His grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So this is who we were outside of Christ. And then the, the kindness and the graciousness of our God appeared. He poured His Holy Spirit out upon us into our hearts, regenerating us, bringing us into the newness of life. All of this through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And we are justified by grace through faith. And that is the hope of eternal life. It's God's doing. He just turns it on. Turns on the lights. We are awakened, if you will, spiritually. 
There's a lot that is going on at regeneration. I just don't think that we have any clue what is going on when God saves a sinner and brings them from death into life and gives them a brand new heart. Just to name a few things that the Bible says, when we are regenerated, we are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit takes residence within us, and we are made alive because He is in us. And because the Holy Spirit is in us, we are united to Christ, the Bible says. The Spirit of Christ is in us. And all of Jesus' accomplishments are become ours in our union with Him. Christ was crucified and He rose again from the grave. And so we identify with Him in that. We have been crucified. It is no longer we who live, but Christ now lives in us. We are united to Christ, His death and His resurrection through the Holy Spirit. We are baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. We become a member of the body of Christ universally because the Holy Spirit indwells us through regeneration. We are gifted. The Bible says that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ and born again, you receive spiritual gifts for the sake of the body of Christ. We've been baptized into the body of Christ, and now we have a part to play. We, being many different members, are one body. Did you know that? When we gather here today in this place, there is something very special happening right now. We're not just here for another Bible study. We are the body of Christ, members of, of a family that have been brought out of darkness into life and called together here. And we are one body. And this is a unique body right here. And when we sing to God together, that is one voice. That is one voice that rises to the heavens for the glory and exaltation of Jesus. And there's no other voice like this voice. It's a unique voice because it's our voices collectively because we are the body. That happens when you are regenerated. You become a part of this. You become a part of this. The Bible says that we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. That is to say, that is God's guarantee. God's guarantee that He began a work in us and He's going to complete it because we have the Holy Spirit in us. We are sealed for the day of redemption. That is God's authorization stamped on your heart. He gave us the Holy Spirit to demonstrate that He means what He says. And He promised that He will see us through to the end and He gives us His Holy Spirit to back that up. Amen? Amen. That happens at regeneration. We are adopted into the family of God. God doesn't just say, you know what, I forgive you, now get out of here. Get out of my face. I can't stand to look at you anymore. <laughs> God does not do that. God says, I love you, I forgive you, and now you're my child. Now you are my child. We are adopted. We have been given the right, we have been given the authority to be called children of God because we've been adopted into the family of God when we were regenerated and the Holy Spirit indwelled us. Amen? Amen? Come on! Praise Him. Austin, I'm going to show you some love, brother. He's always out there trying to get, get, get us to get into it. So, Praise Him. All of that happens at regeneration, and Jesus says it must happen. You have to be born again. You must have this born-again experience. Now, 
I want to uh, be careful when I say experience because when we hear the word experience, we think that there needs to be some kind of extraordinary, supernatural, the, the clouds part and a voice comes down and we fall on the ground and start convulsing all over the place. It doesn't, that is not what that means, but it's a reality. There is a moment in time where you trust Jesus Christ as your Savior and the Holy Spirit he, he indwells you, and you have a brand new heart. You were dead, and now you're alive. And you have to know that that is a reality in your life. You have to know that. When do you think that you are regenerated? I think sometimes for us, it's a mystery. It's a mystery. You know, I've had a few professions of faith throughout my life. I made some professions when I was very young. And uh, I know that when I turned 21, I really understood what I was saying when I bowed the knee to Jesus. And it's possible that I had been regenerated before that. I don't know. But I do know on that day, from that point forward, I knew that I knew. I knew that I knew. And you need to know that you know. And you can know that you know. First John tells us that we can have that confidence. We can have that assurance. And so you need to know, have you believed? Have you been regenerated? Have you been born again. Jesus says, otherwise, you will not see the kingdom of God. He says something similar to this a little later, and I think there's two different things going on, but here he says, you will not see the kingdom of God. And I think the idea here is you're blind to it. It's imperceptible. The kingdom is there. You know nothing about it. You don't know God. You don't see God. You don't understand God's truth. You're not amongst the people of God. It's a foreign reality that you are not a part of, Jesus says, unless you are born again. To be born again is to be able to see. That's why the, the song says, I once was blind, but now I see amazing grace, right? We were blind. We were blind to the realities of God and to his kingdom. But when we came to know Jesus, we were given sight. And Jesus says, you're able to see the kingdom of God. You're part of the kingdom of God. To be a part of the kingdom of God is to be a loyal subject to the king. He's your king and your citizenship is in heaven. And your desire is to do the will of the king and to live for his pleasure. Amen? Amen. To be able to see the kingdom and to be a part of the kingdom. Well, Nicodemus is totally confused. He's lost at this point. He has no idea what's going on. And then he says, can a man enter his mother's womb a second time? That is an absurd question. That's an absurd question. And he obviously knows better than that. You know, I've heard that, um, you know, amongst the rabbis, the Jews, especially in this time, uh, the students, uh, what really made a good student was who could ask the best questions, not the one who had all the answers. In our culture, we think the person who has all the answers is really the smart one, but they really put great value on the person who could ask the most intriguing and fascinating questions. And I don't know, maybe, maybe we're getting that, that reflects this a little bit, but it's just a strange question to ask. And so Jesus now seizes on this analogy, though. He kind of starts with this, Jesus says, you must be born again. And then he's talking about something spiritual, but then Nicodemus takes it, and he's thinking, as odd as it is, physically, literally here. And Jesus kind of seizes this analogy of, of uh, birth, 
And he kind of moves forward with that. And that's important for us to take note of here. Because there's going to be some rather confusing things come up. And people come up with some different doctrines here. And so we need to remember in context, Jesus is using this illustration. There's this illustration of physical birth versus spiritual birth. You with me? Okay, so um, verse 5, Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot uh, enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So Jesus says, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So first let me tell you what this does not mean, what this is not saying. This is not a proof verse for what is called baptismal regeneration, uh, that you must be baptized to be saved, that in fact when you're baptized you are regenerated. So everything I just said about regeneration, baptismal regeneration, is to say that that becomes a reality when you're baptized into water baptism. And they may point to this verse and say, there it is. A person has to be born of water and spirit. But I don't think that's what's going on here. I think Jesus is pointing to the physical birth and that the idea of the water breaks and the baby is coming, right? And so Jesus says that you are physically born, that much is obvious, here you are, here we are, but that doesn't mean that you're spiritually born. And so you have to be twice born. A person who is only born once will die twice. They'll die a physical death and they will die an eternal spiritual death. But the person who is born twice, physically and spiritually, of water and the Spirit, will only die once, physical death, and then eternal life, eternal life. And I think that's the idea here. That's the distinction that Jesus is making. Because he says, look, there it is. That which is flesh is flesh. That which is spirit is spirit. So Jesus is still talking very much physically here. He's making a distinction between physical birth and spiritual birth. And this time he says that if you aren't born of the spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Access denied. Access denied. So first he says you can't see the kingdom of God. It's imperceptible. You're blind to the reality of it. Here he says you cannot enter the kingdom of God. There will be no access granted to the one who is not born again. Does that make sense? You guys with me? All right. Well, Jesus moves on from this analogy to another one. So at this point, Jesus moves from childbirth, if you will, to the wind, the blowing of the wind. Um... Verse 7, it says, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. This is a strange response here. Um, it's it's kind of like, what in the world is Jesus talking about now? Um you know, we just saw what a lot of wind looks like, right, a week ago. Man, I'm, I'm glad that uh, when that wind hit, there were no you know, fires. There was the little fire over in AC that they put out really quickly. But we know it is around here in the valley to see the wind kick up. And we kind of get a little 
up and nervous about, you know, what could happen, a fire breaks out, but uh, man, when the wind tears through this valley, it's pretty fierce, right? We're walking, walking around or driving around. How many of you saw like just branches all, all out in the streets, right? And twigs and leaves all over the place. So we know what it is to see the effects of the wind. And so um, Jesus kind of picks up on that here. And he says to Nicodemus, do not marvel. And that is to be amazed astonished out of one's senses, awestruck. I mean, he just doesn't know what is going on. This is the master teacher of Israel. He's talking to the Messiah, and he has no idea what Jesus is talking about, and it is just blowing his mind. And then Jesus responds with this very fascinating and challenging and bizarre response to Nicodemus's question. You know, Jesus tells Nicodemus, you must be born again. And then Jesus's, uh, or Nicodemus's, his response is like, well, well, how does that work? How does that work, and what does it even mean? And then Jesus's reply is, the wind blows where it wishes. The wind blows where it wishes. And so, I mean, I think there's a sense in which when you think about the wind, he says, you know, you, you don't know where it comes from or where it goes you know, we can't see the wind. You can't see it. But you can see the effects of it. You can see the dust and debris flying through the air. You can see the leaves being pushed across the ground. You can see the branches being torn out of trees. Uh, and so there's a sense in which the person who is born by the Spirit is like that. You can't see the Spirit of God, but you can see the effect of a life that is changed by the Spirit of God. But I, I think there's something even deeper going on here. At least some people have interpreted this a, a little more deeply. I'm going to talk about that right now. Uh, and that is dealing with the sovereignty of God. It's, it's God's sovereign initiative. It's God's sovereign initiative. That's a big word, sovereign. That is to say it, God's in control of this. God is in charge of this. It's God's doing. And so this idea, how can I be born again? The Well, the wind blows where it wishes. It's like saying that it's a work of the Spirit, and it's the Spirit's doing, period. Um, theologians, they like to use the word monergistic. Monergistic. And what is meant by that is that salvation is solely a work of God, and we have nothing to do with it. It was God's doing. It's a unilateral work of God. That is to say that we were dead in our sin, we were blind, we were outside the kingdom of God. We were living in our sin and our deception quite happily. And then one day God said, let there be light. His Holy Spirit just came and just breathed life into you. And you came into the newness of life. You believed the gospel. You heard the gospel message. And for the first time, it made sense. How many of us in here have heard the gospel over and over and we didn't want anything to do with it? It made no sense to us. We didn't care about it. And then one day... There it is. Perfect sense. What happened? How is that? People say that was a, it's, a, it's a, a solely a work of God. Kind of the, the opposite of this is what would be called synergistic salvation. And that is to say it's a cooperation. That we cooperate with God. Yes, God, He does move in our hearts. We're convicted of our sin. We hear the gospel, but we can refuse it. We don't have to say yes to it. We can reject it. Or we can accept it. And so it's like hand in hand with God, 
We cooperated with God's grace, and it was a partnership, if you will. So that's the idea between monergism and synergism. Does that make sense? And so I know this stuff's kind of deep, but you know what? We're supposed to love God with our minds, too. And so we're supposed to be deep thinkers, and I want you to think deeply with me. This is a, a challenging little verse here. What does that mean? How can I be born again? And Jesus says, well, the wind blows where it wishes. There's nothing you can do about it. It's God's sovereign doing. The Holy Spirit just moves. He just breathes life into you. And that does make sense to me. I, I see that as you consider what the Bible says about the elect of God and those who are predestined. Um, I'm talking about a very controversial thing here. I'm just pontificating. I'm just thinking out loud here with me, guys. Let's think together, all right? Um, but that word predestined, it's used many times throughout the New Testament. In the Greek, it's prohorizo, and that means beyond the horizon. So when you look out at a landscape, as far as the eye can see, where the, the earth ends and the sky begins, that is the horizon, the, the demarcation line right there, the boundary and the idea is that God set that. God set the boundary line. He determined it. Prohorizo, predestined. And the Bible says that we've been predestined before the foundation of the earth to be blameless, to be holy, to be adopted into the family of God. And then in a moment in time, the wind blows. The Holy Spirit moves. And then the heart is awakened to the newness of life. And we believe, we trust, we're born again. Scholars kind of say that some, obviously there's a huge debate about this, but scholars say that they would point to this verse and say that's what's going on here. I'll leave that up to you to decide. I'll leave that up to you. Whether you believe that God chose you or you chose God, as long as you are trusting Jesus Christ for salvation, that's what I care about. Amen? Amen. That's what I care about. All right. And so it makes sense to me still, Nicodemus being just this works-based guy, for Jesus to say to him, this time there's nothing you can do about it. You can't work your way in. It's a, it's a work of the Spirit. It makes sense. And so in verse 9, Nicodemus answers and said to him, how can these things be? How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, are you the teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? And so Nicodemus still doesn't get it. And I appreciate his candor here. He's like, I just don't get it. You ever felt that way? You have the freedom to say, God, I don't get it. I don't understand because he knows you don't get it. We don't have to lie or pretend with God. We can be real with God. You can be real with God if you're struggling, if you're doubting, if you just don't get it. And Nicodemus just, he's there. And Jesus essentially says, you're the man, and you don't get it? You know, seldom do we understand what is happening when it's happening. Seldom do we get, have the full picture, you know? Um, his word is a lamp. It's a light. You know, we get, God gives us just enough light to take a step or two, right? And so Jesus goes on now to bring some clarity, and this moves us into the second portion of the text. And this is the need to believe. So you must be born again. It's imperative. It's necessary. And now the, what is necessary is belief. We have a responsibility here. We have to believe. We have to believe on Jesus Christ. And so there was a confidence in Jesus and a confusion about his words. You ready for the next C? Clarification regarding the new birth. Jesus is going to clarify 
So verse uh, 11, most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify to what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And no one has ascended to heaven but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man who is in heaven. So Jesus says, nobody has the authority to speak on these things like I do. The Son of Man, the Son of God, came from heaven. He has seen and he has heard that which nobody in this world has ever seen or heard. And so he has the ultimate heavenly authority to speak on spiritual matters. And he says, yet you don't believe. And so I think there's uh, some insight here. It's not so much that Nicodemus didn't understand because Jesus says, you don't believe. He says, you don't believe. You know, many people will never believe no matter how many questions get answered. That's the issue for a lot of people, maybe even in this room right now. It's not that you haven't had your, ans- your questions sufficiently answered. It's just that you're never going to believe, no matter how many questions are answered. You know what I mean? At some point, you just have to believe. At what point are you just going to let go? Because the Bible says that without faith, it's impossible to please God. At the end of the day, it has to be faith. At some point, you just have to trust. Right? And so here, even though Nicodemus seems to just be totally lost... Jesus actually seems to indicate that it's more a matter of unbelief. And so I want to encourage you here today. Maybe you've you've been struggling for years. Maybe uh, you've been asking question after question after question. And the real question is, when are you just going to let go? When are you just going to say yes? In fact, I want to pray right now. Father, I know that there are somebody in this room, probably multiple people in this room, who are in that place. They've had plenty of questions answered. But Lord, there comes a point in time where they have to just say, okay, I believe. And then in the kingdom, believing is seeing. Because it's already, as Jesus has said, the person who is not born again can't see the kingdom. And so, Father, I pray that today, those people in this room who are struggling with that would believe, finally, that they would respond and that they would see the kingdom that they would see the kingdom and that they would rejoice and that we could rejoice with them for your glory and for, the, for their good and their mercy for their sake. And so we lift them up in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, Jesus says, if you don't believe earthly things, how are you going to believe heavenly things? There's a Kostenberger, I guess that's how you pronounce his name, He says this probably refers to Jesus' teaching about the new birth, which takes place in a person's life on earth. If Nicodemus as a teacher cannot understand this, then Jesus cannot convey deeper truths. That may be what's going on here. I don't know. It's probably not that important. But verse 14, I love this. Jesus says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So it's an interesting story in the Old Testament. Numbers 21, um, the children of Israel, they've been delivered out of Egypt. They're going through the wilderness, and uh, they're complaining against God. They say, God and Moses, by extension, you brought us out here just to die. Well, I mean, how many times do we do that? And, you know, God didn't take kindly to that. 
And so we're told that, that God judged the people there that day, and that all these serpents came out and started biting the people. That's gnarly, isn't it? And um, so the people freak out, as you could imagine, and, and Moses really falls on God's mercy. And God says, I want you to take this, make a bronze serpent and, and raise it up in the air on a pole. And everybody who looks at that serpent will be healed of their bite. Now, that was a picture of Jesus. And Jesus says as much. He says, that was, that was a picture of me. It took faith for them to look up at that pole and believe that that could somehow heal them of the venom that was coursing through their veins. And so Jesus is saying the same thing. You have to look to me and you have to believe by faith that I can heal, that I can save. If the Son is lifted up and believed upon, you will be saved. You will not perish but you will have everlasting life. To believe that the Son was lifted up in death and then lifted up even higher in exaltation through the resurrection and ascension and glorification of the Son. That's the good news. That's the gospel message. That we were sick, that we were dead, and that we needed a glorious Savior. And God gave His only Son, and He was raised up there upon the cross, on the tree, for us, and that we would look upon Him by faith for salvation, and we would be made new, that we would be regenerated, we would be given a new heart. I'm getting ahead of myself, I'm getting excited. So, what is the basis of this? What is the basis, what is the bedrock, the foundation of this promise? It's God's love. God's love. God's love. And that brings us to our next C, and that is certainty. Certainty of salvation for those who believe Jesus. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. Amen? Amen. The greatest uh, news is that God saved us because God loves us. Because God loves us. God so loved the world. God loves His creation. God loves His creation. And God wants to save. And God is going to save. He's mighty to save. And God paid the highest price imaginable to accomplish that salvation. He gave the greatest gift He could have possibly given. He gave His only begotten Son. Not because we are inherently lovely or deserving, but because God is inherently loving. Amen? We need to know that. Let that be your confidence, folks, because many days I know and I feel deeply I am not worthy. Can you relate with that? But it is not based on our worth. It's not based on our uh, it's not on, based on our performance. It's not on any of that. It's because God is a loving God. And that will never change. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen? Amen? And He is a God of love. And that is why He has done what He has done. And He's demonstrated His love at the cross. God demonstrated His love in that while we were sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. And that is our hope. That is our confidence. And He gave us the greatest gift. And He gave us the gift that was most suitable for our need. Pay attention to this. Listen to this. God could have given us many different gifts, but He gave us the most important gift for our need. 
Pastor Phil Foley taught here one time, and he talked about that. You know, a man who is on death row, he could be given many, many gifts, but there's one that is most suitable to his immediate need, and that is a pardon. You know, a pardon. And so what did God give us? What did God send us? A Savior. A Savior. There's a quote here, as best I could tell, from a guy named Roy Lesson. I don't know who he is, but I like this quote. And it says, If our greatest need had been information, God would have sent us an educator. If our greatest need had been technology, God would have sent us a scientist. If our greatest need had been money, God would have sent us an economist. If our greatest need had been pleasure, God would have sent us an entertainer. But our greatest need is forgiveness, so God sent us a Savior. Amen? Amen. God gave, the, uh, gave a gift that was most suitable for our greatest need. He sent us a Savior. And He sent that Savior to us in love. And the Bible says that if we call upon His name, if we look to Him in faith, if we confess our sin and our need for Him, that we will be born again, and you must be born again. And that brings us to our last C. The last C, and it kind of ends on an ominous note, um, and that is condemnation. Condemnation for those who reject Jesus. Verses 18 through 21. He who believes in Him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, and his deeds, that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God." So Jesus did not come to condemn the world because the world is already condemned, the Bible says. The person who believes in Jesus Christ savingly, that is to say, you know, there's a lot of people that trust themselves for salvation. They say, I'm a good person. I've lived a good life. That's, what it, that's to trust in oneself. To trust Jesus is to say, I can't, there is no hope in me. I know that I have not been a good person and that I don't measure up. I'm going to take that trust and put it in the one who is infinitely worthy. Jesus, and I am believing that He lived the life that I could not live, a life of perfection, and He died the death that I deserved in my place. And I am trusting that His finished work accomplished on my behalf is going to get me across that line. Amen? And the Bible says the person who does that is not condemned. And so the Bible here says that the ultimate condemnation is that the light came and men loved darkness rather than light. Jesus came and men rejected God's gift. Men and women rejected Jesus. The light came into the world and people preferred darkness. You know why? Because they love it. People love their darkness. They love it. But the one who believes the truth comes to the light, loves the light, and lives in the light, and walks in the light, even as he is in the light. Amen? Amen. But those who love darkness reject the light, and they remain in darkness. The Bible says this is the ultimate reason for condemnation on that day. You know, it's not a particular sin. I want you to hear this. It's not a particular sin. We, people love to, love to latch on to a, a certain sin and say, whoever does that is going to hell. Isn't that what people so often do? And that's what unbelievers think that Christians are about. 
If you're this, you're going to hell. If you do that, you're going to hell. And that, that's not true. You know, forgive us if we've ever said such a thing. The Bible says ultimately what you have done with Jesus determines everything. We're already condemned. We're condemned. But what we do with the knowledge of Jesus will either give us, grant us forgiveness and entrance into the kingdom, or on that day, that great day, it will give us condemnation. So it's the, the, the sin of rejection. What did you do with Jesus in this life? You know, people like to deflect. They like to say, well, what about the people who've never heard? What about the people in remote parts of the world or in different... And that's a, that's a good question. It's a, it's, a, it's a challenging question. But, you know, I'd like to point it back to the person asking and say, but you do know. You have heard. You've been given the light. What are you going to do with it? Are you going to believe or are you going to reject it? And that's my question for everyone in here today. What are you doing with the light that you've been given? Have you believed it or are you rejecting it? Because on that great day when we stand before the Creator and the Judge, that's the question. What have you done with my son? Are you in him? Have you believed the gospel? Have you been born again or have you rejected the light? Have you preferred darkness? And so my plea is believe Jesus. Be born again. Come into the light. Walk in the light. Amen? Amen. Amen. We, we love you. We want you to know Jesus savingly. We want you to be born again. We want you to be part of our family. And for those of us who have been born again, may we give God all the praise and glory that He is worthy of. Amen? Celebrate. Rejoice your new birth. Rejoice in that. And you are continually being made new. He said, I will make all things new. He is always making things new. Can we live like we're new? Can we walk like we are new? Can we thank God that we've been made new? Can we have hope in this world that all things are being made new? Let's praise God for that. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we worship you. We thank you that you are a God who loves to do new things. Thank you, God, that you've given us a new heart and a new hope in the new covenant, that we are new creations. Praise you for that, Father, always being made new. We give you glory. We give you honor and praise because you're worthy of it. We give you our lives, Father. We give you our lives. Have your way in us. Lead us, Lord. Use us. Fill us. I pray that you would provide for every need in this room. I pray that you would pour out comfort and hope in abundance, Lord. I pray that you would pour out provision, that you would give wisdom to the folks in here who, who need wisdom, that you would give joy to the people in here who are carrying immense burdens, that you would give comfort and peace, that you would give clarity, that you would bring healing to those who are sick and hurting. God, would you meet every need in here according to your riches and mercy, according to your kindness and grace in Jesus Christ. And we come to you confidently knowing that you will. And we thank you for that hope. In Jesus' name, amen.